I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Raw Doll, Wes Anderson style edition. It's Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. On today's show, the director Wes Anderson, he brings his highly distinctive visual style to four short films that are on Netflix. We discuss the first, which is The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Ben Kingsley and Dev Patel. And then uh, I can list them from memory. I, I bet many of you can, too. The four super famous supermodels from the 80s and 90s. Uh, we'll get into it. But anyway, supermodels is, in some sense, a documentary about why I know those names. Um, and it's a four-parter on Apple TV about the rise to rock stardom in those decades of the so-called four supermodels. And finally... Behavioral science for 20, 30 years has represented the intersection of pop book publishing and academia. Think Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Freakonomics, how much of it was based on lies. We will discuss some recent scandalous revelations. But first, joining me is uh, Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, uh, Dana, how's it going? Hey, greetings. It's going good. Good. Um, Shall we make a show? Let's go. Let's do it. Wes Anderson, he scarcely needs much uh, introduction by now. The writer-director of Rushmore, Moonrise Kingdom, I mean, many, many movies, most recently Asteroid City. He's known for his highly distinctive directorial style. It's whimsical, precise, clipped, some might say mannered. And uh, he's famously, he's already conjured with the ghost of the British writer Roald Dahl in the feature film Fantastic Mr. Fox. He now gives us... The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, adapted from a doll story from 1977, about a man who teaches himself second sight, the ability to see without seeing, a power he almost immediately abuses in London's casinos. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Ray Fiennes, Dev Patel, and Ben Kingsley. It runs all of 41 minutes. Uh, In the clip we're about to hear, Cumberbatch as Henry Sugar is narrating the story in the third person. In this scene, Henry's using his newly acquired meditation skills to try to see through a deck of cards. Let's uh, let's listen. The living room of Henry's London flat, midnight. Henry shakes with excitement as for the first time he places a deck of cards upside down before him and concentrates on the top card. All he can see initially is the very ordinary design of thin red lines on the back, perhaps the most common playing card design in the world. He now shifts his concentration from the pattern itself to the other side of the card. He focuses with great intensity upon the invisible underneath of the card. 30 seconds elapse. One minute, two minutes, three minutes. Henry doesn't move a muscle. His now highly developed concentration is absolute. He visualizes the reverse of the playing card. No other thought of any kind is permitted to enter his mind. During the fourth minute, something starts to happen. Slowly, magically, but distinctly, a black blob becomes a spade. A twisty squiggle becomes a five. The five of spades. Fingers quivering, he picks up the card and turns it over. (sighs) I've done it, he says. All right, well, for some reason, our producer decided to play it at one and a half times speed. But anyway, you get the gist. Um, That's a joke. It's it's actually at the normal speed. But um, Dana, let me start with you. I mean, uh, if my memory serves me, you have a wonderfully nuanced set of feelings about Wes Anderson. You don't automatically either love or hate his work. very curious to know what you made of this one. Yes, uh, good memory. In fact, specifically, I think when, in talking about this film or this set of films, because I actually watched all four to sort of try to understand what the whole project was that he's up to. It's I think it's specifically important to know in terms of my own history with Wes Anderson that Fantastic Mr. Fox is maybe my favorite of his movies. It's certainly in the top two or three of my favorite Wes Anderson movies and a movie I've watched countless times. So the idea of him taking on Roald Dahl stories again and taking them on in a really stylized way, it's not stop motion animation like Fantastic Mr. Fox, though there are some animated elements in some of these stories, but it is hyper, hyper stylized. And if you've seen, I can't remember now if either of you two have seen Asteroid City, which we talked about on the show, but I think maybe you weren't on. Did either of you see his latest movie? I I was definitely out for that show. I haven't seen it. I didn't. So if you have seen Asteroid City, there's a very, very similar framing device or set of framing devices that's going on in that movie and in all of these stories where there's a real meta awareness of who's telling the story, who they're telling it to, what the performance kind of context is. And throughout 
both Henry Sugar and the other three, which are much shorter of these new doll adaptations, there's, you know, ongoing kind of jokes like, um, for example, a prop department. <laughs> there's these guys in kind of utilitarian overalls who appear every once in a while with boxes that are marked property department. And whoever is, you know, speaking about something takes the book that they're talking about or the tool that they're talking about out of the prop box. In other words, he's really foregrounding that this is all fakery and that it's being you know, played within a series of boxes. So there's nesting narratives, as there are within the doll story itself, but the nested narratives are themselves nested in all of these images of theatricality. So if that sounds like something that would get on your nerves and that you don't care about thinking about, you might not like either Asteroid City or this uh, this set of new role doll adaptations. But it does certainly show me that it's something new that Wes Anderson is obsessed with and that he's sort of trying to figure out um, what it is to be a storyteller and who you can trust as a storyteller. I can't say that I felt extremely emotionally involved by Henry Sugar, as is often the case with me and Wes Anderson, but I was intellectually very intrigued by it, aesthetically very pleased by it. The performances are extraordinary in that specific Andersonian style where he gives the actors these very difficult tasks to carry out. And in this case, literally verbal tasks, because like you say, Steve, there's just this rapid fire dialogue delivery throughout all these stories, most of which comes, I believe, straight from the doll stories. He really is lifting a lot of exposition straight from them. And uh, and telling these extremely dark stories, Henry Sugar is actually the most lighthearted of them all, and it's got some heavy stuff in it, um, in a way that's very playful and, and often funny. So I will say that I was very happy to have watched all four of these. It, it furthered my understanding of what Anderson is up to and where he's evolving as an artist, even if none of them, including this one, stand alone for me as something that I would say, you must go and watch this movie. Okay, I have to confess, Julia, I don't have a memory of your Wes Anderson store of feelings, if you have any, but I'm curious to know what those are and how this fits in with them. Oh, suffice to say, it's also wonderfully nuanced, obviously. Um, <laughs> I, I'm into it. I don't know, man. I mean... I always enjoy being in his sumptuous worlds and I rarely feel deeply emotionally moved. I think because the artifice, you know, calls so much attention to itself and it's clearly interesting and well done and you can admire the craft and the unusualness. Like it's always striking to see somebody making something idiosyncratic and theirs and different and not just like, I mean, no aliens come in from the sky. Well, I guess I haven't actually seen Asteroid City, but <laughs> the, the movies are um, just unconventional and thus interesting because so much of what is made is a little bit more by numbers these days. But I was curious about this project. I mean, I think I come at it more from the doll lens, having loved a lot of the doll books when I was young and now being at the phase of rereading them to my children and both admiring how wonderful they are and encountering what a weirdo Roald Dahl is, and he was not an unproblematic fave in his adult life in many respects that we don't need to get into here. And so many of his books really are about the beauty and wonder and goodness of children. And some of them are just whack. Like we mm -hmm. just read this book called Essio Trot, which is essentially about a man gaslighting his downstairs neighbor by kidnapping her beloved pet tortoise and buying 300 tortoises and replacing them every day with a slowly larger <laughs> tortoise so that she can believe that she is finally feeding the tortoise the right thing based on his instruction and helping her tortoise grow. And you think, <laughs> surely he will get, you will surely he will get his comeuppance. And he does not. They go heavily into the sunset. It's basically the book is like gaslighting, a wonderful romantic technique. <laughs> fuck, fuck your turtle. <laughs> it's interesting you say that, Julia, because actually, if you watch your way through all four of these stories, quite a few of them have, and not Henry Sugar, but quite a few of them have endings that are similar in the sense that someone doesn't get a comeuppance. It's really an exposure of the fact that just evil and trickery exist in the world, and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. But I thought this story which is essentially, I mean, I read this book when I was a kid. I have not yet read it with my children. Um, I I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that it was about meditation, essentially. It's like a story about meditation. And the rich guy at the core tries to use meditation to cheat at cards. And 
uh, that does not go as he intends, because it turns out if you study meditation devotedly for many years, uh, it has an effect on you and what you want to do with your life. And that didn't strike me as the most Roald Dahlian. I was like, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't think of that as like a Dahlian message. So, and nor do I think of it as a Wes Andersonian message. And And in a way, I wondered if the like extreme devotion to an exacting practice and then the question of whether you actually want to do what you thought you wanted to do is a metaphor for Wes Anderson's cinematic work or like if if part of what Mm. does feel emotionally resonant about this movie which I think does feel sort of strange and compelling in an unusual way to me is that it is a way for Wes Anderson of thinking through what he has devoted his life to, like a like an arbitrarily exacting practice that in the pure execution of it, you move through in some way. I don't know. Maybe that's cleverer than it is true. Uh, but that's what the movie left me thinking about. Mm. That's actually a beautiful summary of what Asteroid City is trying to do, I think. I'm still, I'm still on the fence about whether these accomplish it as well, or even whether Asteroid City does. But I think that's a very apt summation of of his artistic obsession right now. Mm. Well, here's what I liked about it. Uh, I liked that it honored Raltal's very wonderful, very odd story. And, and I'm curious whether that's a tenable position because I didn't know the story until I watched the movie. Um, I have highly overdeveloped and totally unnuanced feelings about Anderson and, and have had since Rushmore. I, I detest his movie making. Um, and I, I almost to the point that I can't watch it. Um, has Wes Anderson ever met an actual person, an actual human being? Like, what is the resistance to engaging with human beings as they are, at least somewhat? I mean, many people with, you know, super developed styles, you know, artists of all kinds have found a way to make their mode of perception interact with the with the recognizable dignity of other human beings as autonomous feeling creatures and not as figurines in a dollhouse, you know, of their own construction. I, I just, I really find something genuinely viscerally hateful about it. It works for me, this one, because it's, a, Julia, you used the right word, I think. It's a fable with enormous power and the way it gets to delivering that power, that works for me. But all of the little jokiness, they seem to, they're a mode, he can't stop self-congratulating. That's the problem with Wes Anderson. He's a little child who's been told too many times how cute they are. He's cutesy uh, to the cloying extreme. And he delivers, and this is what I genuinely hate about it because I find it corrupt. He delivers a a kind of mode of self-congratulation to his fans who strike me as the kind, by, by, implication is the kind of people who do not really understand what makes movie making happen, like what a director does to author a film. And they need a movie in which every single frame can be paused and poured over and you see Wes Anderson's meticulous decision making in every still of it in order to reassure themselves that they are interacting with an auteur. I just find it frankly revolting. Well, wait, but you said this one works for you? How does it work at all if you feel that way? Well, right. That's why I sort of joked that it's maybe not a tenable position. But it's simply because, Julia, I mean, as I said, it's because they're effectively reading the story word for word. So to the extent you're hearing the story for the first time, it does now. And that's why I said it probably wasn't tenable. I mean, there are many ways to film actors reading a story that would be inert. And you, one has to admit this is not inert. So I guess maybe what I'm saying is that I I liked this because of Wes Anderson, in spite of Wes Anderson, and yet at the end of it, it only made me detest him more and wish I had just read the story sitting somewhere silently by myself. Hmm. I, for some reason, it's been a long time since we've talked about Wes Anderson, Steve. I had forgotten that you had this... I think it's because of this. Um, I think it's because we know Steve it. hates him, and there's yeah. not a lot to say if you're always going to have right. that... And, and and it's in fact hard to come back to what you just said, Steve. I mean, I appreciate <laughs> you know, that you... Nor should you. <laughs> it's a turd on the dinner table. Pretend it's not there. I guess I've talked about this in many reviews of his movies. I think that he is one of those directors. There's only a few where every critique of one of his films becomes a referendum on all of them. And you have to have a position on Wes Anderson and it can't evolve. And he has a lot of, you know, um, not just among audiences, but among critics, he has a lot of fangirl, fanboy, you know, um, 
absolute adherence to his vision and maybe some who like Steve are just put off by the whole thing. And I have to admit that he's kind of worn me down, you know, <laughs> after loving Rushmore and then being disappointed by almost every movie after Rushmore for years while continuing to find them, you know, uniquely voicey, but sort of emotionally empty. Then Fantastic Mr. Fox completely charmed my pants off and became one of my child's favorite movies. And mm. we quote it near daily in my yeah. house. And and I started to realize that like one of those painters who, you know, like Morandi, that Italian painter who mm -hmm, painted the same mm -hmm. window full yeah. of bottles his whole life, that there are some artists that <laughs> through hyper focus on one particular stylistic and thematic choice, you know, start to expand themselves within it. And I think he is one of those, which is not to say that he gets better with every movie either. You know, I think at a certain point I just decided, you know what, he's doing what he's doing. <laughs> he has a reason for doing it. And sometimes... I come around and I understand and love it. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so I guess I have, I have a hard time just building a wall and saying he's on the other side of the wall and can never get through. I think I have a similar feeling to you, Dana, of, and I felt this way about Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too, which is like the mannered film boy gets a little wiser and it's interesting to watch. Um, to me, the manneredness doesn't strike me as anti-human. And so that's why I'm always more interested in watching, I think. But anyway, there's there's buzz out here in La La Land that this is um, will be a, a short contender at the Oscars and uh, that it, it'll be a Wes Andersonian year there. So that was part of why we wanted to check it out. Mm. Fair enough. Okay, it's the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. It's on Netflix. Uh, check it out. And um, you Wesley Anderson fans know where to direct your emails. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, uh, what do we got this time? Just one item this week, Steve, but it's a spooky one for the month of Halloween. <laughs> We're going to tell listeners about our first scary movie experiences. This was Julia's idea because as October dawned and the horror movies start to be released, we came back to the ongoing obstacle that Julia Turner hates horror movies and uh, does not want to watch them. And so we thought that just as an extra, we would talk about some of our earliest memories of seeing scary movies and the impressions they made on us. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, here is how you sign up. Go to slate.com slash culture plus. When you sign up to be a member of Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts. You get bonus segments like the one I just described. And many other shows have them too. And you will get unlimited access to all of the writing and all of the podcasting on slate.com. These memberships are what keeps Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that URL is slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, what's next? All right. The Supermodels is a four-part documentary. It's on Apple TV. Its title characters are Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, and Cindy Crawford, all of whom together as a cohort, they simultaneously rose to fame and befriended one another in the 1980s. And now, uh, candidly, uh, on camera, they've given interviews talking about the experience of being these leggy, gawky beauties, uh, kind of plucked each of them in their way from Nowheresville and made very, very famous over a period of few years when they were still incredibly, I mean, almost sort of painfully young, turned into these paragons of uh, female beauty. Turns out they're thoughtful and likable human beings by and large in middle age, in my estimation at least. And uh, it's an interesting look back on a cultural moment. We'll get into it, I'm sure, in detail. As Cindy Crawford says, we were the physical representation of power. A phrase worth lingering over, and we will. It's in four parts. As I said, it's directed by Roger Ross Williams. In the clip, here's supermodel Linda Evangelista talking about her early years in the biz. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. I didn't think I was beautiful. I thought I was pretty. And I knew I was tall. And I was thin, very thin. So I thought I had most of the credentials to be a model. I believe I was almost 19 when I went to Paris. It was suggested that I maybe cheat on my age a little bit. I did get bookings, but bottom of the ladder. I wanted to be whoever they wanted me to be when I showed up at work. 
So whether it was a designer or a photographer, I wanted to, to please them. Julia, let me start with you. Um, this uh, could have been a hate watch, was it? I loved this documentary, and I didn't expect to necessarily. I, Not that I'm not interested in the subject. I'm interested in fashion. I, I was exactly a middle school girl when these women were you know, wearing Versace sequins and, and tilting their heads back in laughter on the covers of Vogue. Like, and then my teenhood was um, very shaped by sassy magazine era grunge, kind of the, the female response to this. So I just wasn't like this really excited to watch it. And I admired a lot about it. Number one, it's one of those documentaries where you understand that the subjects have a pretty strong hand in the doc. Like it is generous to its subjects. It's not out to get them. And yet it explores the areas you want it to explore. I'll be curious to hear what you guys think, but I, it didn't feel captive to them, even though it felt um, in partnership with them in the project of telling their stories. Uh, two... It's just interesting to hear them talk, like as someone who didn't watch House of Style, the Cindy Crawford MTV show, because I didn't have cable. I've been, I've been looking at these women for so long. It's just interesting to hear them say what it was like from their perspective. And then third, and I have a complicated relationship with this, they made such beautiful things. Like there's many, many shots of the of the editorial photographs that they we're partners in making. Um, there's amazing backstage footage, runway footage. I, I, you know, fashion as a project and models as social figures are not necessarily uncomplicated forces for good in the world. And yet I admire the art of beautiful clothes and making them look beautiful. And these women were maestros at it, maestras. Um, and the snippets you get of watching them collaborate with photographers to make these photographs uh, and the particular art of, of being looked at. I don't know, it's a real skill. <laughs> like it's a real skill, even if that sounds ridiculous. So I, I thought it was sumptuous and really well made and, and I'm so curious what you guys thought. Dana. I mean, I do not concur at all that it's, it's well made. I, like Julia, I came to it really interested in the subject matter. I did not go in for a hate watch at all. Uh, I'm basically of these models, these women's generation. And I remember the exact cultural moment when models went from being, you know, nameless, pretty women on the cover of magazines to people that you called by their first name and, you know, followed gossip about them. And that was before the era that we're in now when you usually have a celebrity of some kind, an actor or a pop star on the cover of a magazine. There was this brief period where, you know, you were famous just for being a model. And I was very fascinated to to, to watch a documentary about that transition. And I think this documentary handled that so poorly. First of all, I found it so irritatingly vacuous at times and glossing over parts of the story that I wanted to hear about and placing things in an order that I didn't want to hear about them in and repeating some of the same interview snippets in successive episodes. So it had a the problem of Netflix bloat, like there's four episodes. There are also four supermodels. Why not have a Naomi episode, a Christie episode, a Linda episode, and a Cindy episode? Instead, they're sort of grouped around themes like fame or something. They just feel like they're sort of um, mixing together this very puff piece kind of contemporary footage. Like we really don't need to see every single moment of them, you know, greeting their old photographers and prancing around a white studio together and remembering old times. I agree that the old clips are interesting. The old magazine and runway footage is fascinating. Seeing how fashion, glamour, and beauty were treated differently in those decades than they are now and how we've evolved and not evolved is all interesting subject matter. But I think this movie went about it in a strangely slippery way. And I do think that that had something to do with the involvement of the models as producers. Like, I don't want a takedown of them. I absolutely want a sympathetic portrait of them. But you've got to leave some truth in there, too. Like Naomi Campbell, for example, charming figure, great interview on screen. She has had four assault convictions and many, many more accusations of violence over the course of her career. And it seems like that's something that if you're not going to ask her about it, then, you know, maybe you don't let her produce the documentary. And 
you know, less alarmingly, but also somewhat scandalously, Linda Evangelista once made this remark about not wanting to get out of bed for less than $10,000. It became this, you know, a much quoted piece of evidence that, you know, the, the supermodel era had become too elephantine and egotistical, etc. That is briefly referenced in the documentary. But, you know, it's there also there just isn't any sense to me ever of questioning the behavior or values of the women in front of the camera, even though there's plenty of critique of the larger industry outside of them. So there's this, this sense of both lionization of them as individuals. And again, I don't want to see them torn down by any means. But also this strange retelling of history where those four women totally reshaped fashion. I think it's more like those were the four that they were able to get to participate in the documentary. And it sort of makes it look like, and they revolutionized the fashion world. But if you look at supermodels of the 80s and 90s, I can think of five others that were just as famous and probably did just as much to revolutionize the industry. I think these are I mean, Christy Brinkley, Elle McPherson, there were plenty of name, household name supermodels yeah, they in that era. I don't think that they occupied the same cultural space as these guys, but that, that's a d- subject for a different argument. I think the, um, I, I think one has to watch this. First of all, I agree with Julia. I, I wanted, to, I not wanted, I was, I suspected it would be a hate watch. I ended up more or less loving it. Um, and then one can watch it in two spirits, one of which is simply like the kind of hagiographical like glossing over airbrush to use probably the apt metaphor here but the other is you know sort of like the beatles documentary which of course was way more candid of their making of um let it be which was co-produced by yoko ono who i think probably had um veto power over the project i'd be shocked if she didn't and you know she's sort of depicted a certain way in that um, documentary and one accepts it and then tries to sort of either look past it or ignore it or maybe it was a fair rendering. I mean, I just don't want to, I don't want to relitigate that at all. But similarly here, you clearly you have to watch this knowing that, you know, you're getting a super softened um, and filtered uh, uh, product. That said, there are a number of wonderful stories condensed into these four hours. One is that it's the story simply of kids making it before they understand what that even means. You know, there's the wonderful, iconic story of New York coming back alive in the early 80s. It's still insanely gritty. It still has a lot of the, you know, you know, serious social problems that beset it in the 1970s, but a new thing is sprouting up and they were part of it. The iconic story of the young person like Madonna right around the same time frame coming to New York City and finding this tough city and making it. Um, The story of Naomi Campbell's confrontation with racism is very affecting. The powerful moment that both she and Linda Evangelista attest to where Evangelista finally says, you cannot book me unless you also book her. And um, it's also just a wonderful relic of the pre-internet world, of the curated world, as it's called, where the fashion magazine uh, determined a certain public aesthetic uh, and and certain ideals. Um, and then also, I think it just it, like there's the, just the procedural, Julia, right? Like you and I love procedurals. You just get this peek into a world of like what was it called? Go sees what I wrote them down. I loved them. Let me find Yeah, them. they have go sees. I mean, Dana, I would have not wanted four separate episodes, one on each. Like structurally, this had a total logic. It was chronological. Yeah, yeah it was basically And it was about them, them entering, you know, it was about them getting discovered into an old world of modeling. It was about the world of modeling and fashion changing. It was about them beginning to be more powerful than the designers they walked for. There's a really interesting part where it shows how they eventually developed the power to anoint young designers by agreeing to walk for free and getting their friends to walk for free in shows that could not afford them from a budget perspective and helping make designers like Mark Jacobs and Anna Sui and giving them careers. Um, Like you get to watch these women who are objects become subjects. And I just thought it was fascinating. There are no less than three high stakes haircuts in the first three episodes, which sounds like a ridiculous critique. Mm -hmm. But like the stakes are there. Like I was like, oh my God. (laughs) You know, like because the because of the cultural power that they wielded. And the show takes it really seriously. And Dana, I I, you know, the the their producerdom, you could make an interesting doc that probably was less sympathetic and they're each so gorgeously lit as women in their 50s and 60s like they 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 all just look 
fucking fabulous uh, now in ways that that are like a metaphor for how the film is making them look fabulous and how they're very, very canny, all of them, about being looked at, right? And about mm-hmm. finding the angle and finding the light. And so the doc asks the questions and it, I mean, it spends several minutes talking to Linda Evangelista about that $10,000 for getting out of bed comment. I don't feel like it glosses over that at all. And it juxtaposes her reflection on it now with footage of her from that time, kind of pushing back on someone who's like, how dare you? And she's like, well, this is a huge business. Everybody else in it is making more money than I am. And I'm being paid my value and my worth. And like, there's a, there's a fucked contradiction in there, right? That what does the worth come from? Being beautiful. Uh, but their evolution as people taking ownership of that value, even though the value is the product of both like the actual art and beauty of fashion and the fuckness of patriarchy. Um, I don't I just found it incredibly compelling. And and for Naomi Campbell, I have I've watched three of the four episodes. I haven't watched the final one, which is the one that I gather. Uh, tackles her addiction, which I think she ascribes to her grief in the wake of Jenny Versace's death. Um, and perhaps she's using that as an excuse. But there is a really interesting exchange earlier in the doc where she talks about the rep she got for being, quote, difficult. And she she ascribes that to an offhand comment by John Casablancas, who's not framed as the uh, person you would want running your modeling career in, in these women's telling. So I don't know. I I think I just was much more compelled than you were, it sounds like, Dana, by the job they do of telling parts of their story. I mean, I should be fair and, and watch the entire thing. I gave up after halfway through two episodes because I just thought that the storytelling was too loose and slovenly. And I was getting about 15 minutes of value out of each 55-minute episode. Um, but but I think that this is also me just resisting the expansion of every TV documentary. I think that this could have been told as a two-hour traditional-length documentary and just kept the good stuff. Mm, okay. Well, it's called The Supermodels. It's on Apple TV. Uh, we're somewhat split on it, but I think in the end, Julia and I admire it. Anyway, tell us what you think. Uh, shoot us an email and let's uh, move on. All right. Well, our next segment has been inspired, if that's the right word, by the plight of a Harvard Business School professor named Francesca Gino, who's been placed on unpaid leave and the university is taking the very unusual, you could even say draconian step of uh, attempting to revoke her tenure. There are now uh, lawsuits and counter lawsuits. Gino is I think what's commonly called a behavioral scientist. She's been accused of falsifying her data. Um, Really what the story is in some respects is there's the salacious details of her and her mentor, Dan Ariely, who's a huge celebrity in the field, has written kind of airport bestsellers about behavioral science. Um, But it's also a referendum on behavioral science itself. Uh, This intersection of kind of self-help marketing, pop sociology, and serious academia that I think is best you know, thumbnailed as like the TED Talk. I mean, data is brought in to prove a point. And whether or not, when you go back and actually try to replicate results, you actually find that the science is sound. And much of it, it turns out, is unsound. There's a wonderful, I think, blog called Data Colada, joke on Pina Colada. Three data scientists have taken uh, it on themselves to attempt to uh, expose fraud, endemic fraud in the field. And Julia, let me start with you. I mean, there are multiple scandals at once here, but the the big one really, right, like Gino and Ariely are very prominent peaks of an iceberg that really from the evidence seems to indicate that the desire for headlines, book contracts, and and celebrity, frankly, literary celebrity, has gotten the better of a branch of pseudoscience, nudging it in the direction of pseudoscience. So what would you make of this? Well, I'm always struck when two major publications do similar stories at the same time. So in rapid succession, the New York Times published a story uh, that focused more on Gino's work and her situation, and the New Yorker published a much longer story uh, that included Gino, but also focused on Ariely, her partner, and some of her research, and zoomed out a little bit further into sort of the last 15 years of behavioral science, its kind of rise as a academic field that begat pop interest and airport bestsellers, 
And then the so-called replication crisis where people have tried and failed to replicate some of these scientists have tried and failed to replicate a number of the findings and and called the general field into question. So a couple things struck me. One, a couple different angles on the story at the same time. And, and uh, the Wall Street Journal also published a profile of the data Colada guys. Um, two, in some ways, this is a story that's been unfolding in academia for a long time. And uh, the question of how the general public dips in and has occasion to to kind of think about it and become aware of it. Um, you need scholars of these stature to be accused of missteps to sort of give media outlets an excuse to be like, remember behavioral science? So it's been a mess for a while and here's the update, you know? <laughs> um, that's, that's sort of the spirit I took these stories in. Danny, you know what struck me about this? Many, many things struck me about it. But one of them was, and I'm sure you've encountered this when you're, you know, especially in maybe the production of the Buster Keaton book. There are just moments as a writer in who's doing nonfiction work where you want something to be true. And if it's true, the story's so good. But, <laughs> but you know it's kind of not true. Or the source is dubious or the you know uh, it, it just is it's it's clear that it's purely lore or you know if only like the dress had been blue it would echo with this but the dress was fucking yellow you know and i think journalism has had issues to the extent it's had issues very parallel to this it's involved you know in other words these researchers appear to me to be back filling from a desired headline because they know a credulous journalist and editor will write that headline if they present them with a tidy narrative. Um, do you kind of see that parallel? Do you know what temptations I'm talking about? And and what do you make of this? Yeah, I completely recognize that. And it's making me think of something in the, the book proposal that I'm trying to work on right now, where after I had this opening lead that I was very excited about, I realized because of chronology that basically I had to scrap the whole thing. Like when I was saying something had happened in relation mm -hmm. to other things mm -hmm. chronologically was not right. And therefore I couldn't say the first time, blah, blah, blah. And if it wasn't the first time, why am I talking about it first? You know, so it was just all kind of fell apart because of pesky truth. Mm -hmm. But but I guess the difference that I see here, and I'm sure anybody, yeah, anybody who's tried to construct a narrative out of real facts has had that moment of frustration that truth doesn't fit the story you want it to fit into. But that becomes so much more insidious when you're talking about manipulating data on a grand scale in order to release it in journals that will affect not just academia, uh, but but mass scale behavior, right? Because it seems to me from, you know, trying to understand exactly what this behavioral science trend is, that it isn't just about selling airport bestsellers, but it's about influencing corporations, right? As to how they, I don't know, arrange their workflow or, or set up their cafeteria or whatever, that there's all these ideas about guiding human behavior on a grand scale, Um so that that goes beyond, you know, just being being frustrated that the dress isn't the right color to further your oh, narrative yeah. and becomes really, you know, a, a, a behind the scenes Wizard of Oz behind the curtain style manipulation of mass groups of people. And because this is a very lucrative part of academia to the extent that there are lucrative parts of academia, right, that this that this behavioral science is something that has market application in the business world. Um you know, it, it really feel it starts to feel more like it's grand scale deliberate manipulation, and it makes you very angry at the uh, at the institutions that are allowing it to happen. Yeah, angry Dan is the best thing. I totally agree. It makes me um, angry too. I mean, let's not lose sight of the you know overarching thing, which is that the prestige of all this comes from the supposedly special access to the real, you know, known as science. And we entrust scientists, we give them tenure and nice salaries and job security and all that stuff because they are the stewards of the real um, and, and invested as such with an enormous amount of prestige. And this is the total abuse, not only of the position, but of, of the prestige, right? And so it deserves, if it, the problem is as endemic as it appears to be, there needs to be a kind of root and branch introspection on the part of these institutions. Why won't there be? I think this story is sort of two parallel stories. It's the story of the fate of universities under a market paradigm. These magnificent public trusts, which are the glory of the United States in the post-war era, um, you know, since the 80s really have been handed over to the, to the market in ways that would have been unthinkable um, 
you know, even uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so on the one hand, there's a, you know, powerful need to turn towards private actors to raise money that you used to get from the federal government or from state governments. Um, and secondly, there's endemic job insecurity within the quote-unquote neoliberal university. So what do professors need to do? They need to, like the rest of us, they need to brand themselves and hyper-brand themselves and achieve academic celebrity as the means, one reliable means to job security. Um, and then on the flip side of it, there's this the culture of the TED Talk is such an interesting one to me that that more informal setting where that kind of prestige gets retailed to people who, I have to say, there's just an aura of, you know, a kind of culture of marketing and a culture of self-help that has a pseudo-intellectuality to it now that I find really kind of appalling. Um, anyway, I think there needs to be a mammoth reckoning um, and I hope, Julia, that it's not this in this instance, especially it's not it's not it doesn't remain gendered. It seems that the originary malefactor here is is uh, Professor Gino's um, mentor and, and partner, uh, Dan Ariely, who seems to be like the superstar among stars in the field. It appears from the reporting that he was a malefactor here. And I hope he finds his time in the stock. Yeah, the the it sounds like Duke is. Um, I mean, nobody's commented on it, but the the reporting suggests that Duke is beginning to look into his work. Um, yeah, I mean, you know more than I about the incentives governing academia. The tragedy of it is, academia is supposed to be the place where you can pursue knowledge without an audience in mind, right? Like in journalism, we pursue knowledge, and we also are, because we don't have unlimited resources to pursue knowledge, we try to pursue the knowledge that people are curious about, right? And the things that are useful for people to know or important for them to know, we're exercising judgment about what knowledge to seek and apply our standards of truth to and not not say the dress is blue when it's not. I forget which color we want the dress to be, but whatever, <laughs> to not manipulate dress colors. I don't know why you've picked the <laughs> The, like BuzzFeed illusion as the metaphor here, which is really confounding where, where things. That, I got nudged into it. How did I, I had no yeah. idea I was doing it even? Yeah, like I blame At least Cass in Sunstein. that case, you have two choices. You can be right saying two different colors. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, academia is supposed to be the place where you, you can spend years and be like, nothing doing. I did the, I went and pursued knowledge and what I discovered is no correlation. Like doesn't do anything if you do this. Oh well, yeah. off to check out something else, guys. You know, like you're supposed you you're supposed to have the academic freedom for your results to be boring or inconclusive. And that's like true freedom, <laughs> I think, in the pursuit of knowledge. And whether it's the privatization of funding or the scarcity of funding or the 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 fact that true fame and glory comes in the airport book aisle and 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 the TED Talkification. Like I, I'm not I don't feel confident I understand all the incentives, but um, I just would like to pour one out for everybody who is doing the hard work of checking if something is true and having the data come back and say, nope. Mm. Like, good work, everybody. Keep doing it. Okay, well, there are a couple of, I think, very good pieces of journalism on this already. I'm sure more are coming, one in New Yorker, one in the New York Times, easy enough to find. Uh, we do have a lot of academics who listen to our show so hearing from you would be really great. Let's uh, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have, Steve? I have a musical endorsement that I think will be up your alley. Maybe Julia's too. The up the alley of anyone who loves Joni Mitchell. And honestly, if you don't belong in that category, why are you even listening to this late <laughs> yeah, get that. Why are you Go even away. alive? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Joni, the Joni endorsement that I have, which I'm only just starting to explore myself, is a just released a five CD box set. I don't actually have the box set, but I'm listening to some of the um, the songs that have been released online. The whole thing is not streaming yet for good reason. I think they're trying to actually sell some some albums. It's called Archives Volume Three: The Asylum Years, 1972 to 1975. It's mm. 
It's enough for five CDs, in short. It's 96 tracks in total of unreleased demos, alternate versions, you know, that kind of thing. Nerd-consuming delights for the Joni Mitchell fan from the albums, and there's some big albums, For the Roses, Court and Spark, and The Hissing of Summer Lawn. So her early 70s albums. And uh, from what I've heard, I mean, the, the problem with sometimes with these, you know, nerd releases is that there isn't enough difference between the take that made it onto the album mm. and the stuff on the on the archive. And here, this does not seem to be the case. You really do get to hear some noodling and some very alternate instrumentations of things and hear what Joni Mitchell sounds like when she's just messing around in the studio, which is pretty cool. So what are you going to do about it? You can't live life and you can't Advice and religion, you can't take it, you can't seem to believe it. So if you're one who likes to consume that kind of para-musical, para-album production, like I do, it's Joni Mitchell Archives, Volume 3, The Asylum Years, 1972 to 1975. And it may be, if you're a good music searcher on the internet, that you can find this streaming somewhere. I just found some samples of it. All three of those albums are classic. Sadly, right, Dana, is probably not going to be on Spotify. She still is withholding her stuff for um, their uh, Dance with Rogan yeah, I'm not enough of a Spotify expert or listener to to quite figure out where it is or why it's not there. I just know that when I Googled around and found it, none of the places that mm-hmm. I heard samples were on Spotify. Yeah. But you can, you know, you can easily find the entire album and you can, I'm sure, digitally download the album as well, but you just have to shell out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. All right, uh, Julia, what do you have? I actually have something else to endorse, but this discussion of kind of extra albums and bonus materials and whether they're worth it does require me for intellectual honesty's sake to stipulate, Steve, something I have not confessed, a public criticism of Taylor Swift. Come at me, everybody. Um, I hadn't really listened to any of the Taylor's version albums where she re-records her old songs. And then if you listen to those ones instead, she gets the money and it doesn't go to her nemesis. And as a business gambit, love it. But I hadn't listened to them at all because I'm not that much of a super fan until before I went to the concert this summer. And they're not good. Like, I don't know. It's weird. They're just not as good as the original songs. So anyway, if you if you disagree, come at me. If you agree, come at me. Um, but anyway, just want to be honest with you, Steve, that I have found something to criticize Taylor about, and it's that. Um, but my endorsement is is intended for Dana. So I had a couple of times recently, Dana and I have strongly disagreed, and it's certainly means that my taste is running off the rails. Um, I wouldn't argue (laughs) otherwise, but I'm just going to double down here. I listened raptly to every single episode of Strike Force 5, and I was right. It's a great (laughs) podcast. Like, it's so good. It only got better. I was, like, cackling to myself in my bed, waking up my husband in the middle of the night like the men found their groove and found this very funny rhythm and they just released the final 12th episode um and i just if you liked it at all or if it sounded at all interesting to you i just think it's an unusual product like five men from a number of major business conglomerates collaborating on a product and like kind of kind of doing something raffish and informal when maybe they had no real business reason to, I don't know. It's like an amazing document of this very weird subset of culture. And I, I would strongly recommend a completest listen. The The highlight episodes are definitely the two about the wives, but I really listened to the whole thing in order. There's like all these in jokes. They, they, they develop a whole, you know, seven season sitcoms worth of in jokes and materials in, in very rapid time and reveal a lot about their talent, the particular nature of their talent. So, Strike Force 5, pour one out, go listen. 
I was right. Dana was wrong. It's great. <laughs> I am chastened not only by you, Julie, but by several listeners who wrote in to specifically say, keep listening to Strike Force 5, give it a chance. In in my defense, a couple of them did say it takes an episode and a half or so to get going, and that is about all that I've listened to. Mm. So I will return to it. As I said in our show about it, I love the idea of the late night hosts coming together to do a, a on-strike podcast, and they're all naturally funny people. So if something develops between them, I want to hear it happen. Happen. It's, a, it's obviously a limited scope because now the strike is over and hence the podcast is over. So I'll go back and listen to the whole thing. Owned. All right. Mm. Good. Skeptical. All right. Uh, I um, I want to pound the table today um, because this is one of those instances where you just think something is great and it has not achieved a popularity that correlates with its greatness. And there's just a little bit of point poignancy verging on heartbreak to that. But many years ago, and I think sub- subsequent times I've mentioned or endorsed this uh, singer-songwriter, Lydia Lovelace, goes by the name Lydia Lovelace. And um, I think she's an amazing songwriter, singer, performer, lyricist, melodist. Um, I think she's really sort of supremely gifted and I don't understand why she can't, she just can't for whatever reason find her niche exactly. And she's not like toiling away at all. I mean, I really don't want to belittle anything about her. I mean, she has achieved a level of popularity. She goes on tiny desk and there are a hundred thousand views or whatever. Um, but by and large, you know, she's playing, she's on a tour for a new album and she's playing very small venues and, uh, I just wanted to say that her new record, uh, Nothing's Gonna Stand in My Way Again, which thankfully all music and pitchfork have have really come around on her and, and this record in particular, is wonderful. It's, a gr- it's really a good record. It's a superlatively strong one. Um, and uh, she's out on tour, so you should check that out. And just to give you some sense, like, you know, she rocks really hard. It's country-inflected, and she's dark and she's raunchy, and she's funny, and she's hurt, she's wounded. And this woman brings all of that to each one of these songs. And I, her voice to me is a drug. I don't know why I can't examine it, but the kind of alchemical reaction of her voice and my, I don't know, something, something trickier than endorphins, but it just makes me feel so fucking good to listen to her. So what I'm going to do is make a list of like eight or ten of my favorite songs, nothing overwhelming, uh, and we'll link to it on the show page. It'll be on Spotify, just one click, and just give it a shot. I'm really, I'm pounding the table. If you work for NPR Music, do like a segment on this record. It's, it's out now. She's so good. Lydia Loveless, her new record. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nick Brittell, Nicholas Brittell. And our production assistant is Kat Hong. And our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Bye.